Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton. This is Rules-Based Disorder here on Colin. As always with these episodes, I will take questions that people have, so feel free to join the queue and I'll respond to questions. Just before I go to the questions, I'm going to start today talking about a report that I published, which I think is a really important topic that doesn't get that much coverage in Western media, and that is the plans that Western governments have for Ukraine. We, we constantly hear all this hyperbolic media reporting about Russia, Russia, Russia. We don't hear that much about what Western plans for Ukraine are. We know that, I've talked in, the, in this show many times, that Western governments are flooding the country with weapons. The U.S. government alone has sent Ukraine more than $50 billion worth of weapons and military support. And other Western governments have done the same. But we, we also now have interesting evidence about what they're planning to do economically. And I published an article today at multipolarista.com, and it's titled, West Prepares to Plunder Post-War Ukraine with Neoliberal Shock Therapy, Privatization, Deregulation, Deregulation, Slashing Worker Protections. And this is a report on a conference that happened this July, at the beginning of the month, on July 4th and 5th, that got very little media attention. It was pretty quiet, called the Ukraine Recovery Conference. And it featured Zelensky, Ukraine's Western-backed leader. It featured representatives from dozens of Western governments, including all of the EU, Britain, the United States. It also featured representatives from Japan, South Korea, Israel, Australia. So it was what, you know, Russia refers to them as the collective West. It was the U.S., Europe, and all of their allies, members of NATO, members of the EU. And also at this summit, this conference, there was the president of the European Commission, who's basically the head of the EU, Ursula von der Leyen, and it was also attended by, in, in, in person, by two top Ukrainian government officials. Zelensky spoke via video. I mean, that's all he does. He, he just mostly just exists in Zoom. He's a like fake uh, virtual president. But physically at the conference, there were the, top, uh, the, the other two top Ukrainian government officials, including the prime minister, Denis Shmal, and the chair of Ukraine's parliament, Ruslan Stefanshuk. And Stefanshuk is technically the second in command. If Zelensky were to be overthrown or something happened to him, the next person in the succession, in, in the succession, excuse me, the next person in the succession for presidency in Ukraine is the chair of the parliament, Stefanshuk, who was physically present at this conference. So, this, this should have gotten a lot of media attention. Of course, it didn't. And there's, I think there's a reason why. And I explained it in, that, in the report that I published. I went through the documents that were published after this conference, which is called the Ukraine Recovery Conference, held in Switzerland on July 4th and 5th. They published three different documents outlining their plans for Ukraine. And as I said a, a few moments ago, those plans are neoliberal shock therapy, imposing right-wing economic reforms, 
forcing the government to privatize all state-owned industries, cutting worker protections, cutting wages. I mean, imposing the same kind of neoliberal shock therapy that was imposed on the former Soviet Union, especially Russia, in the 1990s. This should be really scandalous because Ukraine, of course, is going through just a massive economic crisis. The West is fighting to the last Ukraine to try to bleed Russia. Allegedly, reportedly, 15,000 Ukrainians have died, and that's a conservative estimate. So not only is the West bleeding Ukraine, leading to all these deaths of young Ukrainian men, but it's also at the same time planning basically to pillage Ukraine's economy when the war ends. So at this summit, the uh, the Ukraine Reform Conference. Well, that, that's sorry. Let me take that back. Um, the Ukraine Recovery Conference is the one that was just held that this July. The Ukraine Reform Conference is what it was called in previous years. So it's basically the same thing, but of course they just changed reform to recovery. And in the most recent U- Ukraine Reform Conference from last year. This is before Russia invaded. Russia invaded. They published this economic report calling for privatization and state-owned enterprise reform, and it's all just like a bunch of right-wing free market policies. And they boasted of taking credit for the Ukraine Parliament passing a privatization law that simplifies privatization. And what's in- what's incredible about this report? It's so revealing. They admit they they did a poll of average Ukrainian people. And they found that only 12% of Ukrainians support privatization of state-owned companies. 50% of Ukrainians are against it. 12% were indifferent and 25% had no answer. So that's so not only is it 50%, I mean, it's 50% of the people who answered, which is 50 out of 63%. So that is the vast majority of Ukrainians who had an opinion were against privatization. Only 12% support privatization. So they themselves are admitting, the, this Western conference is admitting that they're imposing policies on Ukraine that are extremely unpopular among the, the actual Ukrainian people. And I mean, for people who are more interested in the, in the details, they can be kind of boring. But anyway, just in, in, in short here, the details of these reports that were published calling for the economic policies to impose on Ukraine after the war, it's privatizing all the remaining state-owned industries, it's deregulating certain industries in Ukraine and removing all tariffs, which means basically just opening up the entire economy to be taken over by Western corporations. Privatizing land, having land reform to privatize the land to sell it off to foreign corporations including agriculture, which is a huge part of the Ukrainian economy, including natural resources. And they even call for cutting worker protections laws. For instance, in Ukraine, if you're a worker at a company and you've worked there for over one year, Ukrainian labor law says that if that company wants to fire you, they have to give you a nine-week paid notice, which means they, so they can't just fire you tomorrow They have to give you nine weeks of pay so you can find another job, right? Well, in Poland, which is a member of the EU, the workers only get four weeks. So if their employer wants to fire them, 
they only have four weeks to try to find a new job and uh, four weeks of getting pay. In Ukraine, they have nine months, sorry, nine weeks. So over two months, twice as much. And one of the reforms that, that the, the Western powers are calling in this, this conference is removing that law, ending that law. So basically, not only is the West bleeding Ukrainians dry in order to try to weaken Russia on this proxy war, they're also making plans to put all of the economic burden of reconstruction on the shoulders of average working class Ukrainians who are already suffering through an economic crisis. Many of them have already probably lost their jobs. Meanwhile, of course, Ukrainian oligarchs, billionaires, millionaires, they're not going to suffer. The opposite. One of the other reforms that was demanded at this Ukraine recovery conference by all these Western powers is cutting taxes. In fact, their report says that they say that it's bad that Ukrainian that the Ukrainian government relies on 40% of its revenue from taxes. They say that, that taxes on rich people and corporations should be cut. So once again, rich people and big corporations, they're not going to pay for reconstruction in Ukraine. It's going to be average working people who are already suffering. So it shows that at every single level of this war, it's average working class people in Ukraine who are suffering. Meanwhile, if you don't support the war, if you don't support the West sending billions of dollars of weapons to bleed Ukrainians dry, then you're accused of supposedly not caring about the Ukrainian people. Meanwhile, these Western governments who claim they care about the Ukrainian people are the ones making the Ukrainian people suffer the most, again, in this proxy war to bleed Russia dry. And they're going to profit from it. So not only are they trying to bleed Russia dry, they're going to make money. I mean, it's really cynical. It's really disgusting. If anyone is interested in more specific details, and I have links to all of the reports, I have screenshots of the reports. This is very firm evidence. I mean, this is this is not opinion. This is a factual piece of journalism that I published over at multipolarisa.com. You can find it over there. It's really sickening. And it shows how little the West actually cares about Ukrainians. Well, they, you know, well, they lecture people who don't support bleeding Ukrainians dry in order to weaken Russia. So I, I just wanted to begin in the first 10 minutes summarizing that report there, because it's, of course, not going to get any co coverage in mainstream media. But um, anyone who's listening, please feel free to join the queue. I'll take any questions that you have, and I like to open these up for discussions. Um, there are a few comments here um, <laughs> from uh, Desco. I appreciate the support. And um, Strin39, Zelensky has a target on his back, and it's not going to be the Russians. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Zelensky is that he's this perfect figurehead because he he has no real power. Zelensky was elected and he did win in a landslide with 73% of the vote. But as immediately after winning the election, he did a complete 180. And he, during the presidential campaign, when he was running against Petro Poroshenko, this billionaire oligarch, he, Zelensky portrayed himself as the more moderate candidate. He claimed that he wanted peace with Russia. He claimed he was going to implement the Minsk II agreement. And of course, he didn't do any of that. On his presidential campaign, he actually spoke Russian and tried to reach out to people in the Donbass in the east. And then immediately after winning, he did a 180 and he just became a loyal puppet of Washington. So, yeah, I mean, 
he definitely does have a target on his back because he's extremely unpopular. You know, we constantly hear that, like, you have to support Zelensky to support the Ukrainian people. He's not a popular president. And he's also very corrupt, which is funny because he ran on this ridiculous campaign uh, platform of basically no other policies other than opposition to corruption. And for people who don't know, Zelensky's an actor, which is so appropriate. It's this insane Hollywood reality that we're in. And he had this dumb TV show called Servant of the People, which was funded by a Ukrainian billionaire oligarch who also funded his political campaign. And then he campaigned with a political party called the Servant of the People, named after this TV show. And he claimed that he was going against corruption in Ukrainian politics. And there was a lot of corruption in Ukraine. But he's named in the Pandora Papers, which is this list of offshore companies and bank accounts. And Zelensky is linked to millions of dollars worth of luxury London real estate. He is corrupt. So, yeah, it's 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 a huge farce. I mean, he really is as fake as the character he played on TV. All right, um, I'm going to start responding to questions now. Here is uh, V or Voltaire. Go ahead, V. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Uh, so, um, I guess, um, you know, just, just thinking about the premise of, of your story, um, if you take it to, you know, to the conclusion, like what, what will be left of Ukraine to begin with? You know, um, uh, most likely uh, they won't have any ports and it'll really just be a rump Ukraine that will be left. And what would be the population of that rump Ukraine? You know what I mean? Like, would it be the one, the people who will, who will stay within that rump Ukraine? Um, would Not that they would take it, but that... Um, wouldn't they, uh, I guess, handle it like um, like how the Nazis did, you know, cut backroom deals and um, eventually be put in charge of uh, important things? Um, you know what I mean? Um, so uh, this reconstruction, um, I don't know if it really would be so bad for the people who will be there. And if it is, um, wouldn't they just vote with their feet eventually? What do you think? Yeah, very good questions. Uh, as for what Ukraine's going to end up being, that's a really good question. It, it As for not having ports, it also depends on if Russia is going to go into Odessa. There are people who think that Russia is going to go continue going west into Odessa. Right now they're in Kherson, which there's been a lot of media reporting about. So we'll see um, if if they go further to Odessa, which would honestly make sense and try to connect to Transnistria, which is what a lot of people suspect. Then, yeah, I mean, Ukraine's going to be a landlocked country and it's just going to be I mean, it's going to probably join the EU. So I, I, another thing that happened at this conference, the Ukraine Recovery Conference in Switzerland this July, is that everyone who attended, they signed this joint declaration called the Lugano Declaration. And part of it says that they pledge that Ukraine is going to be, become part of the EU. So 
this is another irony. I mean, talk about exploitation of the Ukrainians. It's similar to what happened in Poland. Poland in the EU basically became this big hub for Polish labor. And, you know, you're talking about voting with your feet. A lot of people left Poland and went west because they could go get a job in, you know, uh, France or another part of the European Union, Germany, and they could make more money because wages are higher there. So there was this massive brain drain, especially people who had like technical expertise, backgrounds in, you know, medicine, engineering, computers, programming. A lot of Poles left. And Ukraine is even poorer than Poland. Ukraine, before Russia invaded in February, and there was this war going on for eight years, which is never talked about. The civil war that was fueled by the West, started by the U.S. with the coup in 2014. Throughout all that time, Ukrainians were getting poorer and poorer by the year. Ukraine is the poorest country in all of Europe. So, yeah, it's a good question. What's going to be left? Well, if you look at it on a map, Ukraine as a country will probably still be pretty big because it's a very big country. But like you said, I mean, it's going to be mostly empty. There's probably going to be a lot of agricultural land. But, yeah, they're probably not going to have ports. It's probably going to be landlocked. And it's basically just going to be this EU protectorate that survives on IMF handouts and imposition of brutal neoliberal austerity programs. That's basically what, what Ukraine has been since the 2014 U.S. Baku, just surviving on IMF loans and imposing more and more neoliberal austerity. And Ukrainians have gotten poorer and poorer. And like you said, a lot of them are just going to leave. And then the EU has a bunch of cheap migrant labor. It had polls before. I mean, for people who don't know, in the EU, there's basically like this kind of hierarchy. Germans are on top. The French are below them. Below them are maybe you could say, I mean, uh, I guess maybe like Italy and Spain, like in the southern and the southern countries, Portugal, and then below them is Greece, and then below them is like Central and Eastern Europe. Poland is like near the bottom. Poland was probably on the bottom, and now Ukrainians are going to be below them. So it 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 provides a big pool of cheap labor for the rest of Europe, and then they can just you know use the rest, like the remaining area of Ukraine as like a buffer against Russia. But it's really sad. And I'm not saying that Russia is completely blameless in this, but obviously the U.S. is the one that pushed this from the very beginning. They were the ones who started this war in 2014 with the coup. And they've made it, they've shown again and again and again that they're willing to sacrifice Ukraine. And that's what's so cynical above all, is you see like all this, this fake support for Ukraine, people with like Ukrainian flags talking about supporting the Ukrainian people, they're the ones destroying Ukraine. And it's really sad. I mean, that's that's all I can really say about it. Uh, I guess uh, one last thing. Um, there's also the migration from Africa and, uh, you know, the displaced from the Middle East going to Europe. Um how big is that population and like how does that affect you know you know what you were talking about well yeah that that's been consistent for several years and if you look at a lot of the immigration i mean there are of course sub-saharan african immigrants and refugees but libya has been such a huge destabilization factor in all of this and that's also never discussed nato destroyed libya in 2011 and Obviously, the U.S. didn't really feel the consequences of that being on the other side of the ocean. 
but Europe has. And there was this scandal that happened a few weeks ago, and it's incredible how these these scandals happen, and they and then they just move on and act like nothing happened. In this Spanish colonial enclave, which is really kind of part of Morocco, but it's technically Spanish territory, like where modern day Morocco is, it's a Spanish colonial enclave called Melilla, and there is this massacre of dozens of African refugees and immigrants who were trying to to jump the fence and cross into Spain. And the Moroccan security forces, backed by the Spanish security forces, just just shot them. And they killed dozens and wounded dozens or potentially hundreds, depending on which report. There's like these these photos of just a bunch of dead bodies. And they're so dehumanized that it gets barely any media coverage. The Spanish government completely defended this action, this massacre. Spanish President Pedro Sanchez, who's from the fake Socialist Party, which is completely, you know, a center-right neoliberal party, PSOE, he, he defended it, and he said that they were a threat to Spain's national security. And unfortunately, it's going to get worse as climate change gets worse. And there's going to be massive displacement, more and more climate refugees. And this is already, with, they're already killing them with little to no outrage. So I, I, on these shows, I'm so often, you know, so pessimistic. It's very doom and gloom. But I mean, Europe, I, I've said this many times, but it really does look like Europe's going back to the dark ages. It's really crazy. It's, it's incredible how fast the decline is, too. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. I'm going to go to, uh, I think it's 31st century socialism. I like that name. <laughs> I hope we also. I hope the planet survives to the thirty-first century. Speaking of climate change, hey, uh, you're muted. Hey, thirty-first uh, century socialism. You're muted. You got to go to the bottom. Press the uh, mute button to unmute it. All right, well, I would love to take a question from you just because your name's cool, but uh, I'm going to just jump to the next person in the queue, and then you should jump back on because I don't want to just sit here in silence. So uh, you try again. Um, Here's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, what's up? I'm unmuted. Hey, man. Uh, Yeah, I was thinking like – in this Ukraine, you know, whatever ends up happening in Ukraine, like if you were, uh, if you jump back to World War II and you were in Germany, you, you know, uh, on average, you'd have been really lucky to have ended up on the west side of the wall, you know, on the, of the DMZ. So, but, but this one, I think, once they split Ukraine up, I think you'll probably be a lot luckier on average to end up on the east side of the split in Ukraine. Yeah, no, do you, I mean, I have, I have definitely have some thoughts in response to that. Do you want to add something else or should I go ahead? Uh, I, I, I got one more thing, but it's not connected. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hit that. Well, first of all, I'll say, you know, disrespectfully that um, even, you know, the idea of like the, of West Berlin somehow being like so much better 
Well, first of all, the Berlin Wall wasn't even built until 1961. It's often not known. It wasn't built right at the beginning. And it, it wasn't built necessarily just to keep people in East Berlin, but also because there were so many like terror attacks and cross-border attacks carried out by the CIA and BND, German intelligence in West Germany, which was created by the CIA and former Nazis, including Reinhard Galen. And like the idea of East Germany being like this hellhole was actually really new. In fact, the standard of living in East Germany, really up until the 1980s, was significantly, over the time, it was better than in West Germany. People, in fact, of all of the Warsaw Pact countries, East Germany probably had the highest standard of living, pretty high wages, uh, obviously very high levels of, of equality, very good worker protection, like a month or two months of, of paid vacation every year, free health care, guaranteed employment, like... Of all of them, like East Germany was actually one of like the highest standards of living. There's actually a really interesting documentary about this. Um, you know, the name is like kind of clickbaity, but I think it's called "Do Socialists Have Better Sex or Do Communists Have Better Sex?" And there, I mean, it's a clickbaity name, but it was about the difference of of life in East Germany compa compared to West Germany, and especially focused on the role of women and how in East Germany women were much more equitable, they had much better rights, um, they, you know, had a guaranteed employment and guaranteed childcare and all of this. And there was like this study that done and it was like looking at the sex lives of people in West Germany and East Germany and it was actually significantly better in East Germany. But anyway, so that, that's a whole other thing. So I think in general, we should even just challenge that propaganda. But as for now, I mean, yeah, if, if you're in Ukraine, if you had to pick West or East, I mean, first of all, I think East would be better, not only because of what I was saying earlier, like the horrible economic conditions that West Ukraine is going to be going through. But also, if you look at uh, Ukrainian history, Western Ukraine, which traditionally actually had going back to like to Poland and when it was part of like the, the Polish kingdom, West Ukraine was the area that was the most pro-Nazi when Nazi Germany occupied Ukraine in World War II. And it was the center, it was like the hub for the Banderites and the far-right ultra-nationalists, you know, these ultra-conservative people who, like, see Russians as, like, Mongolian, Asiatic people. So, in general, I mean, not that, like, uh, you know, necessarily, like, being, like, a, the rural area necessarily is bad. Like, I don't want to play into the stereotypes of, like, rural areas being inherently worse than cities. But, even historically, West Ukraine was just like the worst place to be in Ukraine. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty de depressing situation to think about. And I would definitely prefer being in the East. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, so you're saying I might have been propagandized in, in, my, uh, <laughs> in my views about East versus West Germany. How could that be? <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Uh, 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 okay, real quick, because I see there's a couple other people. I, um, you know, I've I've watched both those interviews. Uh, you you have a, up on YouTube with uh, Aaron Good, and and I just finished that book, American Exception. And man, that's a fantastic book. And you know, anybody who's listening that could get their hands on a copy. I actually listened to the audio version, but um, but I could only listen to it in like twenty minute uh uh 
clips because it's just got so it's so, it's so depressing. <laughs> no, uh, it's dense. I mean, it's yeah. but but it's it's easy to get through. You know, I mean, it's actually extremely well written. I, 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 I mean, that should be in like political science 101 classes in, in all the colleges across the country, I, I think. But anyway, it's, it's just, it's just, it's, it's very, it's a, it was a hard read because it seems like it's extremely well researched. I, I tend to, you know, believe most of what he, what he wrote in there. And it's, uh, it really makes you feel like this you, the kind of this country is irredeemable when you look at the the depth and breadth of what's been going on for for such a long time. So yeah. Anyway, but the, but the, but anybody, even if you can't get the book, uh, those uh, those 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 couple of interviews you did with him are are really great. If anybody hasn't caught those, and and I'll let you go. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron. I always Thanks, Aaron. I always appreciate comments. Um, there's an echo, so I'll just I'll just meet you there. Thanks, Aaron. Um, yeah, for people who don't know, there's another Aaron who's a friend of mine, Aaron Good, this brilliant political scientist and historian. He wrote this book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. It's an amazing book. I, I agree. It should be, you know, uh, required reading in political science classes. For people who are interested in reading it, um, you know, I said this to Aaron and he agrees with me. I would recommend, you know, the first five chapters are kind of slow because they're very academic because he, you know, he's a PhD and the book is based on his dissertation. So at the beginning of the book, he kind of establishes like a very, um, like academic, uh, intellectual or intellectual is not the right word. Um, theoretical understanding. Uh, he like, he like, he overview, he does an overview of like international relations theory and different political science theories. And it's interesting, but that's, that's not really the meat of the book. It really starts in chapter six. And really, after around page 100 on, it's basically just a history of the U.S. empire and the U.S. deep state from, the, from even before its creation, but especially focusing on post-World War II. I mean, it's an amazing book. And for me, as someone who prefers history, I mean, theory can be important, but I think history is often more important. If anyone is interested, they should just check out from page like around 100 on and it's one of the best histories of the u.s empire i would consider it up there with one of my favorite books one of the most influential books on for me which is killing hope by william bloom for people who don't know that book i mean it's it's an amazing like bible of cia operations and what william bloom this great independent anti-imperialist journalist did is he just documented like the crimes of the cia and the u.s in spy agencies in different countries around the world. And, and there's this famous map people have probably seen of all the like U.S. foreign um, covert operations and coup attempts and all those. And that's from William Bloom. So I think in many ways, Aaron Good is kind of like the new generation William Bloom, like continuing in his steps. And yeah, so for people who are, who are interested I'm doing a series with Aaron, and what we're basically doing is just turning this book, which is 400 pages, into a podcast and video series. And we've already published the first three parts. I think we're going to publish part four this upcoming week. Um, so we're just going to, we're going through chronologically 
and doing kind of a history of the U.S. Empire and deep state. So it's it's a fun it's a fun um, show, fun series that we're doing. And yeah, Aaron Good is like a walking encyclopedia of all that. So it's thanks for thanks for plugging that, Aaron. All right, I'm going to go to uh, Olu now. Hey, Olu, how's it going? Hey, you're you're muted, Olu. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How's it going? Hi, hi. Um, I just want to know, do you think there's going to be World War Three in this decade? Well, that's a good question. I think it's very possible, unfortunately. I think a lot of people in the White House are really underestimating the fire that they're playing with, not just with Russia. I mean, you could even say in some ways that this is like the start of World War Three. There is this guy... Um, Shane, I need to look up his last name. I feel bad. I, I forgot his name. There's this guy at Rolling Stone who wrote this really good article about the foreign fighters in Ukraine. And he he's a U.S. military veteran. And he basically, he argued that the U.S. government is as close to waging war on Russia as it could possibly be without just having U.S. troops directly on the ground. And the New York Times had a report acknowledging that the U.S. has CIA forces in Ukraine on the front lines and a bunch of European governments have special operations forces. That That's basically one step removed from just full-on conventional war. And if people remember the history of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, it was exactly this kind of mission creep where the U.S. started sending in trainers, many military equipment, Special Operations Forces, CIA, Operation Phoenix with the assassination program, and then the U.S. sent thousands of troops. So, I mean, I hope the war in Ukraine doesn't escalate further. I think with the inflation crisis, that is really hurting so many Western governments, understandably. Biden has a 31% approval rating. He's going to, his party, the Democrats, are going to get crushed in the November midterm elections. We obviously have seen, you know, Boris Johnson was probably, I guess he resigned, although he made these weird comments a few days ago saying that he wants to like undo his resignation. I don't even know if he can do that. But anyway, um, we've seen that Draghi in Italy was forced to resign. Um, I think in the Czech Republic, the leader was forced to resign. So given all of that internal dysfunction, I don't know if they can escalate further in Ukraine, but that is already really scary and close to World War III. But this now what they're doing with China, I mean, I talked about this in my last episode, if people were more interested, but it really is pushing the limit. And I think a lot of people in Washington, they think that China's not going to call their bluff. But China has to respond. The Pentagon just announced yesterday that when Nancy Pelosi goes to visit Taiwan without going to the mainland, which is basically just saying that the U.S. recognizes Taiwan as an independent country, despite the fact that U.S.-Chinese relations are fundamentally based on the three communiques back in the 1970s that acknowledged that Taiwan is part of China. It, and the Pentagon said that when Pelosi goes, they're considering sending fighter jets along with her plane. So what happens if... Even if it's not on purpose, if accidentally one of those fighter jets gets shot, gets shot down, that's World War III. This is really scary, and I think a lot of people think that it couldn't potentially escalate. But 
when you have these politicians in Washington and also Brussels just just so casually doing these actions and playing with fire, it, it's really dangerous. So you, I liked your question also, Alup, because you said this decade. I mean, who knows where it could go? This is just right now. Now, if you ask me if I think World War III can happen this year, well, I would be a little, I'd be a little more cautious and say, well, probably not, hopefully not. But who knows what can happen nine years from now, in the next 10 years? The economic situation is probably going to get worse. Climate change is going to get worse. So it's, it's pretty scary. Well, that's, not, why we, we need to, that's why we need to, once again, not only be saying how scary it is, but saying that like p- peace and diplomacy it should be the solution to this war in Ukraine, not flooding the country with more weapons. It's so it's so insane to see how few people are calling for peace talks. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, it's very disturbing though. Like they never like bring up any peace negotiations. It's always more weapons, more weapons. So it's amazing. Yeah, it it's really dangerous and really irresponsible. And like I said at the beginning of this episode these same Western governments that condemn people, including their own citizens, if they, if we oppose sending more weapons, they claim we don't care about the Ukrainian people, but they're the ones sending Ukrainians to die. In fact, a British journalist who is in the Donbass in East Ukraine, and obviously, you know, his reporting is pro-Russian. His perspective is is pro-Russian. There's there's nothing wrong with that. You can have a people. Journalists are allowed to have perspectives. Western journalists are all pro-Ukraine. They don't even hide it. They're like telling people to let, they're like activists now lobbying for weapons for Ukraine. Anyway, the point is that this British journalist had, he was, he's a UK citizen and the British government imposed sanctions on him. What, 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 this is insane. This was just announced. He's some YouTuber. He's not even, he doesn't even work for Russian media. He has like an independent YouTube channel and he, he, he doesn't like, he didn't renounce his UK citizenship. So now we're at the point where not only do these Western governments think that they can just impose sanctions on any country around the world, but they're even imposing sanctions on their own citizens. And he's not like a volunteer, like he's not fighting with like Russian forces. Like there's this guy, Virgil Texas Bentley, who I've done an interview with. He's a he's an American he's from the U.S. and he moved to Donbass and he's now a Russian citizen. And I think the U.S. has sanctions on him, which is obviously also ridiculous. But I think he renounces U.S. citizenship. Is that the guy that did that podcast with Brianna Greyjoy? He might have. I'm not sure. He's got like a Texan accent from. Oh. No. Uh, so I think. But anyway, the point is, I think he renounced his citizenship. So, I mean, obviously, I, I don't support U.S. sanctions, but it, that makes a little more sense. But this British guy, he's still a U.K. citizen and the British government just sanctioned him. So. What does that mean? Like he's stateless? Does that mean if he goes back to Britain, they're going to imprison him for being a journalist? This is pretty scary. Yeah, but you know that Russian um, news reporter who protests in, in on the television, in, in the Russian television? Like they reported it in, in the news in Britain, yet yeah, to say that she got fined for seven hundred pounds, and that was it. She didn't go to jail. She just got fined for seven hundred pounds, and they made it like a big story in in, in England which is ridiculous. No, exactly. It shows, 
you know, this, the great so-called British democracy is sanctioning its own citizens for doing uh, having a perspective in their journalism that it doesn't like. And yet, you know, Russia is the big bad boogie, boogeyman. All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling in. All right, I'm going to go to uh, Gerald now. Go ahead, Gerald. Hey, uh, Gerald, you're muted. I don't know what's... I, I guess... Uh, I hope there's not an issue with the app. Sometimes the app's kind of buggy. It seems like a lot of people tonight can't unmute. Hey, Gerald, can you hear me? You're muted. You got to go to the bottom, bottom left. Press like the microphone button to unmute it. Um, by the way, while, while I'm waiting here, it, 31st century socialism, if you want to join again, I'll, I'll take a question from you. You just have to unmute yourself. But uh, yeah, Gerald, I, I'd like to take your question, but uh, I can't do that when you're muted, man. Um, Aaron, did, did you have something else? I'll jump back to you just because you're still in the queue. Was there something else, Aaron? Or did you just, maybe you didn't leave the queue. So, <laughs> what's going on tonight? <laughs> hey, Aaron, you're muted still. I don't know if you, I don't know if you wanted to add something else. Well, I'll take, I mean, I'm willing to do like 20 more minutes here. If people, there we go. I'm going to take JC now. Here we go. Go ahead, JC. Can you hear me? Yeah. What's up? Wow. So just as an aside about the muting and the being able to speak, I called these things for a while and you got to like give permissions to the app, which I know everybody knows that, but I just found that out. Anyway, is your name Benjamin? I just see Benja. Yeah, Ben. Ben, what ben. Is, it doesn't matter. I mean, I just what? do, uh, I do that because in, yeah, anyway, because in Spanish, everyone calls me Benjamin. So anyway, and I live in oh. America. All right. Well, you know, I've been listening. I've been listening for like 20 seconds. And uh, what was you talking about last December in regards to Ukraine and Russia? What do you mean last December? You mean when when Russia had a series of of security guarantees that it wanted from the US, EU and NATO and they refused to, to give a single inch? Well, yeah, that happened for sure. But I'm, I'm wondering, like, I'm, I'm not being adversarial. I'm just being curious. I've listened to this for a while. Like, maybe 2004 was when I first heard about, like, that first Orange Revolution. Yeah, and, which was yeah, a, I didn't a U.S. operation. <laughs> the, the Guardian published an article admitting that the so-called Orange Revolution was all funded by the U.S. government and a bunch of NGOs backed by the U.S. It was a classic, you know, so-called color revolution. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, but I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just a person just not as in touch with everything, but I do listen to stuff and I'm just, I mean, what the hell is going on, man? Right. Yeah. Well, good question. So I'll, I'll kind of briefly summarize it. And I've if you're interested, I've done, I've done videos and podcasts about this. If you check out my website, multipolarista, I think it's in my bio. Um, I have a, I have like a, a, like an hour long video where I explain the history of the conflict in Ukraine. But 
a short short history of it would be back in 2014. I mean, you, so you mentioned the Orange Revolution. The irony is that the 20 the 2004 so-called Orange Revolution, which yeah, you probably know, is uh, Viktor Yanukovych won the election, and the West accused him of rigging the vote. So they had a second round. And then in the second round, they just flooded it with all this propaganda. The U.S. spent tens of millions of dollars on like propaganda and NGOs and all of this. And they basically just like robbed the election from Yanukovych. And The Guardian published, an, which is a very you know pro-Western newspaper, very anti-Russian newspaper. The Guardian published an article admitting that, just basically boasting of the role of the U.S. in funding this operation to basically oust oust Viktor Yanukovych and what was kind of like a soft political coup. It wasn't a violent coup. Well, then fast forward 10 years later, and then you have another coup, and this coup is actually violent, unlike the, unlike the 2004 coup, which is the so-called Euromaidan. So long story short is that Viktor Yanukovych was the democratically elected president of Ukraine, and he is often portrayed as pro-Russian, but what that really means is that he was neutral. And sometimes he would go with Russia and sometimes he would go with the West, depending on what was good for his country. And he was trying to negotiate, ironically, he's called pro-Russian, but he was trying to negotiate an economic agreement to get access to the, the EU market. And in order to do that, the EU demands that you impose all of these brutal austerity policies like cutting minimum wage, privatizing state companies, especially like um, the gas company, nuclear energy company. And imposing, um, also cutting gas subsidies and oil subsidies, which obviously would be very unpopular. So Yanukovych said, no, this is unacceptable. I'm not going to impose all these policies. And that would just hurt my popularity and hurt the economy. So instead, Russia recognized there was an opportunity there. And Russia offered him a better, a more favorable economic agreement to get access to the Russian market. And he took it. And in response to that, those same kind of networks that were behind the Orange Revolution were activated in late 2013 in the so-called Euromaidan protests. And, and then in February 2014, after Yanukovych brokered an agreement with those same protesters, the U.S. organized a coup and basically just, just destroyed the agreement. And the, the main architect of the coup was the top U.S. State Department official, Victoria Newland, who's this neoconservative. She is married to Robert Kagan, one of the, the co-founders of the Project for the New American Century, one of the architects of the Iraq War. And Victoria Newland was recorded in this phone call in February 2014, speaking with Jeffrey Payet, who is the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And they, they say very clearly who the leaders of the post-coup regime will be in Ukraine. They specifically name this guy Arseniy Yatsenyuk. They say Yats is the guy. They say he should be prime minister. And then a few weeks later, he's prime minister. So it's one of the most blatant coups in history. And then after the coup in 2014, in which like these, these very far-right ultra-nationalist forces played a key role, including neo-Nazis, they basically set off a civil war. They passed all these laws restricting the use of Russian language, restricting the rights of people in the eastern Donbass region who are Ukrainians, but they're ethnically Russian. That sets off a civil war. Now, yeah, Russia did send support to the fighters in the Donbass, but the West also sent billions and billions of dollars of support to the Ukrainian coup regime. So I'm not saying that it's 100% the West. You could say that Russia did, you know, it, it didn't just sit there defenselessly. 
But um, the, the West bears the vast majority of responsibility for causing this conflict. And from 2014 up until Russia invaded this February, 14,000 Ukrainians died in a civil war. According to the United Nations, that, that, that figure, 14,000 Ukrainians died. And according to the UN, the majority of civilian casualties were in the East Donbass region. That is to say, the Ukrainian coup regime, backed by the West, was responsible for the, the vast majority of civilian casualties in that eight years of civil war. And then you, you mentioned December. In late 2021, uh, Zelensky was making these crazy comments about sending the military into Crimea to retake Crimea, which had a democratic referendum in which over 90% of people voted to become part of Russia, which actually makes sense because Crimea historically had been part of Russia for most of its history. And ethnically, the people who live in Crimea are Russian and speak Russian. So Zelensky was making these crazy comments talking about a military operation to retake Crimea. He even said that he was considering putting nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which would have been possible because the Trump administration, and especially John Bolton, his national security advisor, withdrew from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which would give the U.S. the ability to put intermediate range ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons in Ukraine with a flight time of five to 10 minutes to Moscow. So in response to all of that, uh, Putin said to the West, he said to the US, NATO and the EU, he said, these are my security guarantees. And if you don't respond to them, we're gonna take action. And then Russia started putting troops on its border. They were in Russian territory, but they were on its border. And, and the security guarantees were, you can't, Ukraine can't join NATO. Ukraine has to be neutral and that Ukraine uh, has to be, you know, denazified. There are a lot of these far right extremists, you know, neo-Nazi groups that are part of the Ukrainian security services, including the Azov Battalion, also known as the Azov Regiment, which, I mean, it was directly incorporated into the Ukrainian National Guard. That's an objective fact. And they've played a key role in this war, especially fighting in Mariupol, which was their base. So, the West refused to budge a single inch. They refused to meet any of Russia's demands. They didn't even negotiate at all. Like, obviously, Russia made these demands, and then those are Russia's maximum demands. And then if you actually believed in diplomacy, what you would do is you would offer a counterproposal, and then Russia would offer a counterproposal, and you would negotiate and have some kind of peace agreement. No, the, the U.S., the EU, and NATO refused. They said, they said bring it on. And I think in many ways, the U.S. wanted Russia to invade. They pushed for this, like like the U.S. wanted the Soviet Union to, to intervene militarily in Afghanistan in the 1980s, which is why the U.S. began this operation, Operation Cyclone, going back to 1979, supporting the Mujahideen to draw in the Soviet Union. This was the plan of U.S. National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski. And that's basically what they did in Ukraine as well. We now have reports from Yahoo News that Right after the 2014 coup, the CIA began training Ukrainian soldiers and special operations forces in the, inside the U.S., but also the CIA starting in 2015, starting with Obama and then continuing under Trump. The CIA was sending all of these forces to the, the, the front lines of the fighting in Donbass. And they were and the goal of, accord, according to a former CIA official, he told the New York, sorry, he told Yahoo News that the goal was to, quote, to kill Russians. And that was before Russia even invaded. 
So clearly the U.S. was pushing and pushing and pushing, and then Russia invaded. So, I mean, that's, that's what brings us to where we are today. Well, thank you for that, uh, that uh, I don't know, information. <laughs> uh, yeah, my pleasure. I, I, I think I think that uh, I've been around this country, the USA, for a little bit, and there there is a machine that needs to be fed, and there's there's a group of people that want to create situations where that machine keeps getting fed, and I wish we could turn off that source and maybe start some other things that would be a lot better for the world, but I don't know what to do. Yeah. I'll, I, mean, I, I'll look, I'll look into your, what you, uh, I just really, I just stumbled in here and uh, I'll, I'll call back later. I mean, not tonight, cool. but at some point. Cool. Thanks, JC. Well, Thank you. Always good to have new callers. Thanks for joining. Right on. Yeah, I mean, um, I think what he said is true. I mean, the military-industrial complex, it it always needs more war. And if you look at the U.S. economy, a huge part of it is just built around war. Not, not just these big, you know, weapons corporations like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, BAE Systems, but also think about how many jobs there are in providing the infrastructure for all of that, building the factories and, and the materials that are provided, uh, fossil fuels. Like people talk about what, like what percentage of the GDP comes from directly from the military industry, the you know, weapons industry, but it's also all of the other, you know, the real estate industry, the insurance it's, there's just so much built on the military industrial complex. It's such a huge part of the economy and war is good for business. And now Ukraine is, getting billions of dollars of weapons. And what a lot of people don't talk about is, you know, even I sometimes am guilty of this. I mentioned, for instance, earlier that the U.S. has sent $50 billion of military assistance to Ukraine. But what I should have said, that makes it sound like it's free. A lot of that's debt. So what that means is that it's the U.S. government basically giving contracts to these for-profit companies in the in the Beltway, these, you know, the Beltway bandits, the military-industrial complex, and then they're sending the weapons to Ukraine, and then Ukraine has to pay the bill. So it, it, an interesting parallel is the Lend-Lease program, which during World War II, the U.S. provided military support to the Soviet Union and to Britain. And what's not that well known is that the Soviet Union, which of course was overthrown in 1991, and then it was replaced by the Russian Federation, the Russian Federation didn't pay off its debt until 2006. And even Britain, which, you know, we constantly hear is like Britain's like the top U.S. ally. They have a special partnership, special relationship. The U.K. didn't pay off its Lend-Lease debt until 2006, the same year. So that means that Britain was paying debt to the U.S. from 1945 until 2006. And how long is Ukraine going to be paying its debt? So, yeah, it's it's a really sad kind of cynical operation. And the only people at the end of the day who, who benefit are the weapons companies in these the military industrial complex. Certainly Ukrainians aren't benefiting. They're the ones dying. Certainly Russians aren't benefiting. So this was a fun episode. 
I get a lot of it was Ukraine based, but that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's in the media, it's reported on so badly. Uh, I do this every week, sometimes twice a week. I've been very busy this week, so I just did it once, but I will be back next week. So uh, thanks to everyone who joined. I'm sorry, I guess there were some tech issues. This app can be a little buggy, but um, if, if, if someone called in and they weren't able to, to ask a question, please join next week and I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot for joining.